me, Lord, a sinner? And would you speak to your people? Jesus Christ, would you feed your sheep? Help us to see you exalted and lifted up through your invincible word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I still remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. And I even remember what I was wearing. And I'm sure for most of you here this morning, you do as well. The time was about 6 p.m. Indian Standard Time. I had just come home from college. I was living in my parents' house. I was a freshman. And I walked in through the doors. I walked into the room where my dad was watching TV. And I looked on the TV. The whole family had gathered there. Something important going on. And on the TV screen, I saw smoke and fire. It was September 11, 2001. And two airplanes. We saw the first airplane had crashed a few minutes earlier, and and just after I walked in, a few minutes after that, a second airplane we saw dart across the screen and crash into the other World Trade Center tower. And this morning, I, I want you to let your mind go back to that moment, to those days, the days and weeks that followed. I remember a few weeks, I was studying in an Islamic college. I was doing engineering at an Islamic institution at the time. And in the weeks that followed, some of the guys in the dorm rooms had posters of Bin Laden on the walls. And today, it's been several years now, 14 years later, but you still turn on the TV, you turn on the news, and your mind can go back there in an instant because you hear all about ISIS and all that's happening in the Middle East and people displaced from their homes And the black Islamic flag of ISIS being raised up in city after city. So I want you to imagine with me, imagine this end of the world scenario almost. Put your mind there and think about what if ISIS was to grow in power and begin taking over the world. They begin toppling nation after nation and city after city and very soon they take over the United States. Many cities fall, Chicago and L.A. and Houston and even Louisville. And the red, white and blue across the nation is replaced with the black flag of ISIS. They begin capturing people and relocating them to different parts of the world. And imagine for a moment that you too are taken. Some of you are shipped off to Afghanistan and Iran. Others are shipped off to Pakistan And maybe some of you really unfortunate ones get shipped off to Canada. But you're shipped off all over the world and ISIS rules supreme and there's misery and sorrow and devastation and destruction for years on end until all of a sudden another empire comes to power and destroys ISIS. And this empire is more benevolent and kind and gracious And they decide to start sending people back. Back to their home. And once again, you are among the fortunate, blessed people to be chosen to be sent back to the United States of America. 
You're coming back, back to the homeland, back to the USA to rebuild and to replant. And this empire even commissions you to come back together with a group of people and undertake the rebuilding of a national monument, the Statue of Liberty. But you come back and things have changed. There's no, no longer cities and, and buildings. There's ashes and dust. You make your way back to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and you come to your building here at Burton Memorial Baptist Church, where Burton Memorial used to meet, 4377 Cemetery Road. And you find your old building is a pile of rubble. And very soon, this whole rebuilding project is a pile of trouble. There's, there's fewer people than you had imagined would come back. Some of the people decided to stay where they were because they've built their lives there. They've been there too long. And among the group that came back, there's poverty. There's distress. There's a long, dark winter, and you're hungry, and there's no food. And there are fights and squabbles and factions developing and division. And very soon, all hope seems lost. And then just imagine, one day in the middle of the night, you have a dream. And in this dream, there's this dark night sky, and all of a sudden you see a a little red flame in the night sky. And this flame begins to grow brighter and brighter, and you see, in its light, the Statue of Liberty standing at five times her normal size, gleaming bright, and the flame from her torch lights up the whole night sky. Imagine the kind of hope that that kind of a dream would give you. Imagine how you would feel. Well, that's exactly how the prophet Zechariah felt when one day in the middle of the night, he saw his vision of a lampstand in Zechariah 4 with some big differences. This was not the United States of America or any old nation. This was God's own nation, God's people, His covenant people, Israel. And and this was not any ordinary monument like the Statue of Liberty or any old lampstand that Zechariah saw. No, this was a lampstand that stood at the very heart of where God would meet with His people. This was a lampstand that stood right in the center of the Jerusalem temple that the people of Israel were hoping to rebuild. It's been 70 years and the people of Israel have come back to the land after 70 years in exile in Babylon. The Babylonian empire came and decimated Israel under God's judgment and took these people captive, spread them all across the globe, And after 70 years in exile, the chosen few have come back to the land, commissioned by the king of Persia, back to Israel, back to the homeland, to rebuild and to replant. But as one person put it, you can get the people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? The people of Israel have come back, and they're hoping to rebuild and replant, but all is not what they hoped for. They had a simple creed. They had a simple belief. Their God was the God of the universe, Yahweh, who created heaven and earth. 
and he would help them in their time of need. But the question was, where is he now? They're back in the land, and they're hungry, and there's poverty and distress. There's factions and disputes among them. There's division. There's not enough people to complete the work that they came for. And all hope seems lost. And then one day in the middle of the night, the prophet Zechariah sees this lampstand. And and the lampstand, as you read in in this vision in in Zechariah 4, the lampstand is glowing bright. It's all of gold. And and he's seeing it in, in a manner that is absolutely amazing, more glorious than even the actual lampstand that stood in the temple. He sees seven bowls with with seven lights on each bowl. And so there's 49 lights on this lampstand. It's a million-watt lampstand that Zachariah sees. And this million-watt lampstand is lit by two olive trees on either side of it that are pouring oil into it nonstop. It's like a perpetual motion machine. The oil keeps pouring. The lampstand stays lit without human intervention. And it lights up, displaying, symbolizing the presence of God with his people. The lampstand stood in the temple to symbolize the light of God's presence. And Zechariah is seeing this million-watt lampstand that stays absolutely lit. And he's blown away. In fact, he's so blown away that he doesn't even understand what the lampstand means. And so he asks the angel. And by this point, you are wondering... What in the world does this prophet and this lampstand and Zechariah chapter 4 and Zechariah's vision of a lampstand have anything to do with Burton Memorial Baptist Church or with me this morning? But I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, that Paul says that all of Scripture was written for our encouragement so that we might have hope. You see, just as the people of Israel were longing for God, in a day of discouragement, we too long for God's presence in a day of discouragement, in our days of discouragement. Just like the people of Israel were struggling in a day of small things, we too can struggle in what seems like a day of small things. And just like the people of Israel were on a temple building mission, they were sent back to build God's temple, we too are on a temple building mission. Jesus Christ is building a temple of people, where people are living stones, where he is gathering people from every tribe and tongue and nation from all over the planet to be a dwelling place for God. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are God's temple. Peter says that we are living stones having been chosen by God. And God is building his temple through us. So we too, as God's people today, are on a temple building mission. And just like during their mission, Israel needed God's promises and a vision of God's presence to give them hope. We too need hope from God's word as we engage in this temple building mission. And I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, To live in confidence and to have hope as God builds his temple through us. We can live in hope in God's promises as he builds his temple through our lives. And I want to show you three ways 
that Zechariah chapter 4 encourages us and gives us hope in the building of God's temple. Number one, for the building of God's temple, you must rely on the sovereign spirit of God. For the building of God's temple, you must rely on the sovereign spirit of God. So Zechariah sees this vision and like I was saying, he doesn't understand what it entails or what it means. And he asks the angel that's there with him, what does this mean? And the angel replies, don't you know what this means? You're the prophet, you're supposed to know what this means. And Zechariah says, you know, bubbles and babbles and says, no, I, I don't. And then the answer comes. And sometimes prophetic literature like this can be a little bit hard to understand. Because the way that Zechariah works and Isaiah works and a lot of these prophets work is it's like Dolby surround sound, as one of my teachers put it. You have one speaker that turns on and then you hear something here. And then you have another speaker that turns on and then you hear something more. And then the top speaker turns on and you hear something more. And then all together you hear the complete sound and get the complete idea. So point number one is... Speaker, right speaker, point number one. Speaker one of the Dolby surround sound. The angel is going to explain. Zachariah is going to understand. We are going to understand what this vision means. So, Zachariah is waiting for the answer. And the answer comes. Verse five. Do you not know what these are? He says, no, my Lord. Verse six, the angel says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, these people were struggling. They didn't have the manpower, they didn't have the muscle, they didn't have the money, they didn't have the means. They did not know how in the world this temple building project was going to take place. They were struggling. They were perplexed. And the answer to them is, it's not by power, nor by might. It's not by manpower, nor by muscle. It's not by wealth, nor by wisdom, human wisdom. It's not by giftedness, nor by gimmicks. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. There is always a human tendency and a human arrogance, a human hubris that says, I can do this. It's the eye of the tiger, the thrill of the fight. I can do this. In the city that I'm hoping to move to, in Dubai, global city, one of the fastest growing cities of the world, there stands the tallest building built by man on the face of this planet, the Burj Khalifa at 2,716.5 feet. And here's the inscription that, that, that's at the bottom of that tower. It reads like this. I am the power that lifts the world's head proudly skywards, surpassing limits and expectations. I am an extraordinary union of engineering and art with every detail carefully considered. 
I am the life force of collective aspirations and the aesthetic union of many cultures. I stimulate dreams, stir emotions, and awaken cre creativity. That's how man builds his temple. That's how it works in the kingdom of man, but not how it works in the kingdom of God. My brothers and sisters, in our temple building mission, we rely on the sovereign spirit of God. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, as he used to climb up to his pulpit, fighting depression every week to preach the word of God to 10,000 people in his congregation at the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle, with each step would pray to himself, would pray to God saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Take another step. I believe in the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? He's the same Spirit of God who was there hovering over the face of the waters when, when all was darkness and the earth was formless and void and God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. He's the same Spirit of God who was with Israel when Moses encountered God at the burning bush and then led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and they were standing at the shores of the Red Sea, shaking in their boots with Pharaoh's army approaching swiftly. And the Spirit of God moved and the waters parted and the people of Israel walked through on dry ground. He's the same Spirit of God who was with Daniel in the lion's den. He's the same Spirit of God who filled Mary's womb and who emptied Jesus' tomb. And He is the same Spirit of God who was there when you were once in darkness, when you and I were in darkness, dead in our trespasses and sins, lost under the sway of, of, of the evil one. And the Spirit of God moved as you heard the gospel, as we heard the gospel preached to us. The Spirit of God moved and the lights came on. And you were brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ so that you may proclaim His excellencies. That is the Spirit of God who is with us. He is the Spirit of God who is in charge of this mission. He is the Spirit of God upon whom we rely. The sovereign Spirit of God. The sovereign Spirit of God who moved in creation and who moves in new creation. And He is the Spirit of God who is with you in all that you do. As you proclaim God's word in evangelism, as you reach out to your unbelieving family and friends and neighbors and relatives, as you speak the word of God to your children and hope that they would believe, that is the spirit of God who moves. He is the same spirit of God as we walk as the church in unity, fighting for purity, fighting to remain pure and to be the people of God in a, before a watching world. He is the same Spirit of God who is with us and who is with the church as we rise up and go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Spirit of God who empowers us. But there's always these fears and these weaknesses and these questions that come up. How, how, how am I going to do this? I'm, I, maybe you think I'm, I'm too young be a part of God's mission to see some younger people here. Or maybe you think, I, you don't understand, I'm too old 
I'm, I'm way over the hill. How, how am I going to be a part of God's mission? By my spirit, says the Lord. Oh, you think I'm scared? I've never even been outside Kentucky. How, how in the world am I going to be a part of this mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to a people who have never heard, to Hindus and to Muslims? By my spirit, says the Lord. You think, Aubrey, do you realize we are talking, you're in Bowling Green, Kentucky, in this church here. We're a small people. How can we make a global impact? How can we make an impact for the kingdom of God? For a worldwide mission? By my spirit, says the Lord. You say, I'm, I'm weak. You don't understand. My, my heart is dry. I'm struggling. I'm in, a, in, I'm in a season of dryness or weakness. And I feel like God is far away. By my spirit, says the Lord. Look at the question in the text. Who are you, O great mountain? What is the great mountain? What is the mountain that is impeding the building of God's temple and the advance of God's mission in and through your life? It will be crushed. It will become a plain by my spirit, says the Lord. Will our weaknesses and fears get in the way? Will our failures and flaws get in the way of the building of God's temple? Let me assure you, brothers and sisters, they will not. So not only do we have a sovereign spirit, but we also have a Savior who will finish off His work. So the second reason that we can have hope and confidence for the building of God's temple is by trusting the Savior who will finish off His work. We rely on the sovereign spirit of God. And for the building of God's temple, we trust in the Savior who will finish off His work. You know, in the aftermath of 9-11, the president at the time, the president of the United States, before Congress, declared this. He said, As a symbol of America's resolve, my administration will work with Congress and with these two leaders to show the world that we will rebuild New York City. And earlier this year, I saw a headline in the news, and the, the headline read like this. Glory be, three World Trade Center finally started rising again. Ever since embattled Three World Trade Center got its groove, that, it's, that, it, that is, its funding back in order, we've been waiting for action at the construction site. And there it goes. It's been 14 years, and people are still waiting. People are still waiting for something to happen, and now there's, there's some action, there's some movement at the con construction site, and people are getting excited. But there are still no completion dates. We don't know when it's going to be completely rebuilt. It works a little bit differently with the promises of God. Look at verse 9. And this is the second speaker in the Dolby surround sound. The second speaker is getting turned on and explaining the vision and the meaning to Zechariah and to us. And the angel says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know 
that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And you see this character, Zerubbabel, all throughout this narrative. We, we read about Zerubbabel in Haggai, as, as uh, Pastor Dallas read, Haggai chapter 2, and we see Zerubbabel prominently. He's the one before whom the mountain shall become a plain. He's the one who's going to bring forward this top stone while people are shouting and celebrating. He's the one whose hands lay the foundation of this house, and his hands are going to finish off the work. Who is this Zerubbabel? Well, Zerubbabel was the governor over the people of Israel when they came back from exile. Zerubbabel was God's anointed and appointed leader in this rebuilding project. He was the one who was given the commission and who was chosen by God to lead the people in the rebuilding of this temple. Just like the leaders who promised to rebuild the World Trade Center. Like I said, the difference between God and man is that God keeps His promises. And God's promise here is that the hands of Zerubbabel would finish off the work, would finish off the work of building God's temple. But you see, this Zerubbabel in Zechariah's time was just a picture, just a trailer of a greater figure to come. Just someone who is like an arrow pointing forward at a greater governor, at a greater temple builder, at a greater captain who would bring God's mission to completion. My brothers and sisters, we have that greater governor. We have that greater captain. We have the one who is the fulfillment of all God's promises, who builds God's temple without fail. His name is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And, and what, is, what, is, what is the whole purpose? Why is all of this celebration in the building of the temple? Why did this temple exist? Why are these people so concerned about, about the temple being rebuilt? Why is this such a big deal for the people of Israel? Why, why, is, why is there so much rejoicing in the text? Because the temple existed to deal with sin. How do a sinful people meet, before, meet with the holy God? God meets His people in the temple because the temple is the place that sacrifices were offered for, sins, for the sins of the people so that they could draw near and meet with God. You want a confirmation of that? Keep reading Zechariah. In Zechariah, you have this vision that when God comes back to His people, He's going to purify them. He's going to melt away with fire, refine them, take away all their sin. That promise is all throughout the prophets. As you read in Isaiah, God says, I'm going to remove all your dross. I'm going to draw near to you. You are going to be a pure people for my name's sake. And they built that temple, but it didn't really happen. All you need to do is read the New Testament and you see that the temple itself became a place of corruption. No, there had to be a newer temple. There had to be greater hands that laid a greater foundation and that built a greater temple where our sins would really be purified. My brothers and sisters, you need not fear that your sins will get in the way of God's temple building mission because the same hands that laid the foundation of our house, of our temple, of our dwelling place with God will bring to completion that work. His hands will finish off the work. We have a greater governor than Zerubbabel. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one. His hands laid the foundation 
of our temple when they were nailed to a cross for your justification. And his hands are working in your life right now, in your life and my life, working in us, causing us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And those same hands will welcome you one day in glory when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Those hands will finish off the work. He will give us the victory. He will build his church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is the one in whom we trust. This is the Savior who will finish off his work. Paul knew this. Right? The Apostle Paul knew this. What do you think it was that, that gave Paul the, the boldness to go to the ends of the earth and to not be ashamed of the gospel? What is it that gave Paul that confidence? Paul says, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. What is it that gave William Carey? William Carey was, was the father of the modern missions movement who, who, who let good and kindreds grow, go, literally, and, and moved to India, to my country, to share the gospel. What is it that gave him the confidence to do that? What is it that gave him the boldness to do that? This is what William Carey said. He says, Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on that sure word would overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. The work to which God has set his hands will infallibly prosper. The work to which God is calling us is not one in which we work with uncertainty. We are not afraid of the result. Christ must reign until Satan has not one inch of territory. God will give us the victory. So, my brothers and sisters, how do we endure in the day of small things? We endure because we know that the day of small things is a day of big promises. We endure because we know the one whose hands laid the foundations of our temple and we know that his hands will finish off the work. He has finished off our sin on the cross and he will bring this mission to fulfillment. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting this Savior every day when you struggle with sin? Or when you feel unworthy. Or when, or when guilt rises up in your soul. Remember, before my, the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. So, we rely on the sovereign spirit. We trust in the Savior who will finish off the work. But what do we do now in this period in between. What do we do as we wait in this day of small things, which is a day of big promises? What do we do as we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled? What is our work? We live in confidence and in hope in the building of God's temple. Number three, by proclaiming God's invincible word. For the building of God's temple, we rely on the sovereign spirit we trust in the Savior who will finish off His work and we proclaim God's invincible word. So speaker one, 
was turned on, speaker two of Dolby surround sound was turned on, and now the top speaker is about to turn on and the vision is going to be completed. Look at verses 10 to 14. The angel said, says, These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. That's, that's a picture of God's sovereignty. God sees all things. God knows all things. He will bring it to pass. And then Zechariah is thinking about one other part of the vision that he sees, those two olive trees on either side. And he's curious. What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, the angel's silent. He's saying, he's thinking to himself, the angel's standing there and saying, Zechariah, you're the prophet. You really should know this. And Zechariah is like, "Mm, not so sure. So he asks them a second time, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? Won't you tell me, angel? And then the angel says, come on, do you not know what these are? Zechariah stammers and stutters and says, no, my lord. And then the angel says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Like as if that's an answer. And and there's a lot of debate and question about who these two figures are. Some people say, oh, this is Zerubbabel again and, and, and the high priest Joshua. And, and other people say, um, you know, we're, we're not really sure who these two are. Well, I, I'll tell you what I think this is referring to. I'll tell you who I think the angel is talking about. The angel of God is talking about the prophets of God. Haggai and Zechariah who speak God's word. How do I know that? Well, for one thing, this phrase, this, this phrase here, which is used to describe them, those who stand before the Lord of the whole earth, the ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth, is used throughout the Old Testament to talk about prophets. Prophets are the ones who have access to the divine counsel. They stand by the Lord of the whole earth. They are the ones who receive God's word and proclaim God's word to the people. So that phrase is always used to describe prophets. A second reason why I am confident and I, I, I'm confident in saying that these two anointed ones are Haggai and Zechariah, God's prophets, is because if you look at the vision, what is it that keeps the lampstand lit? What is it that keeps the fire of God's mission burning? It's, it's, it's the, the olive trees pouring oil into the lampstand. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and really read this narrative, what is it that empowered, what is it that equipped and enabled the people, the Jews, to build the temple? It was the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. And you can see this in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14 says, the elders of the Jews built and prospered, built the temple and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. And we just saw that in the passage that we read earlier today, Haggai chapter 2. Haggai speaks the word of God and the Jews, the people of God, receive the word of God and they move to complete the mission of God. The prophets were holy men 
who spoke God's word to God's people. And God's word is what empowers and equips God's mission to move forward. My brothers and sisters, they had need of prophets, intermediary men who spoke God's word to them. But we have the whole counsel of God, the divine treasure, the holy apostolic and prophetic word made more sure, which is given to us in our Bibles. We all, Moses, Moses says in, in the book of Numbers, how I wish that all God's people would function as prophets. Well, you and me, all of us have access to God's mysteries. All of us function as prophets in a sense because we are little p prophets as we speak and understand and proclaim this mighty word. This word, this invincible word that, that brings God's victory has been given to you and me. You think about Reformation Day. Yesterday was Reformation Day. 498 years since the Reformation. What was it that brought about the Reformation? All of, of Europe, all of the world was in darkness. Absolute pitch black darkness under the sway of the devil. And, and, and the church was corrupt. The people of God thought that they could work their way to God by paying money and buying indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. The word of the gospel was silent, not proclaimed. And then somewhere, sitting in Germany, a monk opens up his Bible. And Luther read that the righteous are saved by faith alone. And then he says he ate and drank and went to bed. The word of God did it all. And the Reformation spread like wildfire across Europe. And you and I have the gospel today because of that mighty invincible word. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abide it. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sided. Those words were written by Luther. He knew what it was that brought about the Reformation. He knew what it was that gives God's people victory. God gives us his victory through his mighty word, my brothers and sisters. And, and you think about those words of, of William Carey that I, as I read a little while ago. He says, God will give us the victory. There were, there, were, there were two young people, 24 and 23, a, a man and woman, the first missionaries from this country, from the United States of America, to be sent with the gospel. Adoniram and Anne Judson. They read those words from Carey. They had read of Carey's work, and, and, and they were passionate to take the word of God to those who had never heard. Little did they know what the Lord, what the sovereign Lord had in store for them on that journey. Their first child was born at sea, dead. On the way to the mission field, their companions, half of their companions died, the other half went back. They arrive in India and they can't stay there. They've chased, chased out by the East India Company. And finally, they make their way to Burma. In Burma, their second child is born, a little delightful little boy named Roger. And, and Anne writes in her journal that he was all the delight that they had in this dark and strange land. And within a year of his birth, Roger dies. 
and they're all alone, strange land, strange country. Judson is busy trying to, trying to learn the language, the Burmese language, trying to reduce it to writing and, and trying to translate the word of God into Burmese. It takes him seven years before he even finds one con, before he has his first convert. And just as things are beginning to move forward, as he's beginning to translate the scriptures, as he's beginning to, to see a little indigenous church, one or two or three people get saved, Judson is imprisoned because they think he's an American spy. And Judson is going through the most dire conditions imaginable in that prison. And Anne comes and visits him, him every day, smuggling her food to him in this prison where men are hung by their thumbs at night, where there's a caged tiger in the cell next door to Judson, where there's so much filth and excrement and squalor that, that men lost the will to live. Men just died in there. But Judson lives on, knowing, knowing this, that God will give us the victory. And then Judson finally gets out of prison, and when he makes his way to the refugee camp where his beloved wife Anne is found, he can barely recognize his own daughter, his third child, can barely recognize her in the arms of a Burmese woman, and Anne is at the point of death. And soon after, Anne would die, Judson would go crazy and retreat to the jungle for an extended period of time. And while all of this was happening, while Judson was in prison, while Anne was alone, she didn't want to lose the, the, the copy of the translation of God's word that he had made, and so she buried it underground in a garden. And, and, and the word of God lies there, hidden. And Judson's off in the jungle, his wife dead, his child dead, all alone. And then he hears the news after an extended period of time that his brother in the United States had died. But he also hears that just before his brother died, he had become a Christian and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lights came on for Adoniram Judson. And he went back knowing God will give us the victory. A couple of years ago, I met a little man on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I, I remember I was reading Judson's biography at the time. He walks up to me, hi, what's your name? And I recognize he's from somewhere in the east. And he told me his name is Lampi. And so I said, okay, Lampi, where are you from? And Lampi says, I'm from Burma. So I was like, oh, wow, from Burma, Myanmar, as it is called now. And I said, I've just been reading Adoniram Judson's biography. And Lampi, without blinking, replies. He says, oh, yeah, Adoniram Judson, of course we know him. Uh, we still use his translation of the Bible in Burmese. The, the, the word of God, which was hidden in a garden for several years, is still bearing fruit today. Judson is, is dead and gone. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord now. But the scriptures that Judson translated still speak. My brothers and sisters, 
this is God's invincible word. We speak this word, proclaim this word, trust in this word for God's mission to be accomplished. Will you proclaim this word to your unbelieving friends and family members? Will you proclaim this word at work and in the coffee shop, in all you do and through all you do? Will you trust in this word for the fulfillment of God's promises? This word is invincible. It will never fail. God's words never fail and God's promises never fail. He will give us the victory. See, Zerubbabel and the people of Israel built their temple. But like I said, that temple failed and faltered and eventually fell. Because a greater temple and a greater temple builder had to come. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you and I are God's temple. And and you know that another man in Scripture saw lampstands. Another man, this is not just Zechariah, there was another man who had a vision of lampstands. He saw several lampstands. What else did he see? He saw the Alpha and Omega with eyes of flaming fire standing in the midst of those lampstands. And he stands in our midst today. Well, John didn't just see lampstands. He saw the completed picture. He saw the entire thing. He saw the entire temple. He saw a picture of our completed temple. Clear. And that's in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, where John says what he saw was a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My brothers and sisters at Burton Memorial, I want to ask you this morning, do you see yourselves there? Do you see your unbelieving friends and family members, those to whom you are proclaiming the gospel, do you see them there? Do you see people from every tribe and tongue and nation there? People from Afghanistan and Pakistan and China and India and Australia and Turkey. Do you see them there? Do you see the Lamb of God inheriting the prize for which He died? So we build God's temple because we have a sovereign spirit. We have an invincible word. And we have a Savior who will finish off His work. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You that Your promises are always fulfilled. That we can trust in You, rely upon Your Spirit, proclaim Your Word, and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Keep our eyes fixed on him today. In your name we pray. Amen. Take heart, Burton Memorial. God will give us the victory.